I think there was a real question about how much of the sort of normal day-to-day stuff would return. I mean, obviously it almost entirely has, but I think, you know, really just this idea of like, does the economy that we've built and that for 10 years, really 12 years had been on this glide path, just constantly going bet higher and higher. Uh, does that even make sense anymore? And I think trying to capture that in the moment and bring people back to just how fraught and fragile it all was. Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast, the podcast that brings you practical advice, lessons, and stories from senior leaders and thought leaders from around the world. The Strategy and Leadership Podcast is brought to you by SME Strategy, working with organizations around the world to create and implement their strategic plans. To learn more, visit smestrategy.net. And now, your host, Anthony Taylor. Hey there, folks. Welcome to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. As always, we have a special guest for you today, but someone who we don't normally interview. So today we're talking to Liz Hoffman. Liz, how are you today? Good. How are you? I'm so excited to chat. I'm awesome. So Liz is a business and finance editor at Semaphore. She spent almost nine years at the Wall Street Journal, and she just finished writing her new book, which is Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink. Hi, Liz. (laughs) Uh, Tell our listeners a little bit more about you. If I didn't cover it, what does investigative journalism, what does journalism in your sphere look like? And then I'll ask you some questions. So yeah, so I've only ever been a journalist. I've been a journalist for 15 years, most of it covering some corner of finance and business. I was I started out as an M&A reporter covering corporate mergers, which uh, was a lot of fun. And I covered investment banking, Wall Street, all manner of stuff, capital markets, trading, you know, the, all kinds of Wall Street stuff. Um, and then the pandemic happened. And it was, you know, I wasn't quite a, a financial reporter in 2008. So I kind of missed that that crisis era reporting. And it was just like very clear to me very quickly that this was going to be a giant economic story. And at the time, as you mentioned, I was at the Wall Street Journal and spent a year writing about the pandemic through the lens of, you know, economics and business and financial markets. That's awesome. And that's what book came out of, yeah. Oh, and it, so it says here, you know, books from Air, or stories from Airbnb, American Airlines, Ford, Hilton, Morgan Stanley. What was it like going through the process of talking to people, reporting on that and learning about this call it once in a lifetime event? Hopefully, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it, it came out of this. So, you know, very late, I had to really wind the clock back. You know, late March of 2020, you know, my my editors at the Wall Street Journal, you know, we're three weeks into this thing. No one can really get their arms around it, but it's obvious that this is a huge tsunami that's coming for the global economy. And so we ended up doing what was like a 9,000 word story, which for people who don't, you know, in journalism, most stories are like 500, 600 words. This was like an epic story that took over the entire business section of the Wall Street Journal the first weekend of April. And it was a day-by-day accounting of the month that the economy stopped. We call those TikToks. It's a little bit of journalism lingo for you. But, you know, we talked to, and um, many of my colleagues helped with that. And we talked to CEOs and investors and policymakers, literally went day-by-day to try to capture sort of something that I tried to to keep in mind as I was reporting and writing the book, the sort of slowly and then all at once feel of the pandemic. You know, you'll remember that 
we were all making fist bumping jokes. And then three days later, we went to our homes and didn't leave for three months. I mean, just the the speed with which this this tsunami just kind of washed over the economy to me was breathtaking. And it was a moment that we felt needed to be captured. And coming out of it, it was just so obvious to me that there were there was a book here, that there were just these incredibly rich narrative stories that were still unspooling. And so, you know, naively at the time in my head, the way I'd kind of thought about the project was, all right, well, it's it's I think by the time I actually kind of had a proposal and, and really got going on the book, it was May or June. And I said, okay, this will be over by December, right? And it'll be, it'll be a short, tight book about, you know, the the year that really upended kind of the new world economic order. And obviously I was incredibly wrong. And I was <laughs> and I was still reporting and, and writing it, you know, 15 months later and and really the last the sort of last bit of reporting that's in the book is late 2021 and early 2022 is as we're coming out of the pandemic and now starting to hear words like inflation. So, you know, just an incredibly rich time in history to be looking at and and something that I think we'll be dealing with for, you know, years to come. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I definitely want to ask you about, you know, what your learnings were in there, but I kind of want to go behind the scenes because, you know, as I mentioned or alluded to, we don't talk to a lot of journalists. And what I just find fascinating is, you know, this 9,000 word piece that you wrote, the TikToks of life, where I think at least my experience as a CEO and somebody who works with other CEOs, we were feeling it in our bubble. Like we had the experience that we had and at the time was not shared in common with anyone else. And then you as a journalist report on things to provide perspective on an issue for the rest of the world. And I just find that fascinating. So how do you balance kind of the pers- the feeling of stuckness in the world because nothing was going on. Meanwhile, your job is to kind of show the progression of it. What's that like as a journalist in that one moment in time? Well, what was what was funny about the pandemic, you know, I think in all of our lived experiences, and then I realized it as I started talking to business leaders and policymakers about their experiences was that it was both incredibly lonely and isolating, but also in many ways, very universal, right? To your point, everyone was sort of living in their own bubbles, but the bubbles were were quite similar in lots of ways. And I think, you know, one, one sort of real joy of reporting the book was seeing how, how common, you know, experiences were. And, you know, you talk to your friends, the commonality was, I watched Tiger King. Did you watch Tiger King? Like we all binged the same things on Netflix. And when you talk to CEOs, they were doing some Netflix binging too, but um, the things that connected them were, do we have enough money? Are our employees safe? Will we have any customers? Does our business even make sense anymore? And that was, I think, the thing that really gripped me in the early days was, you know, economies, people say markets go up and down, right? There are recessions, economies wax and wane. But the thing that I think really you know, looking back, it's easy to say the economy did not fail. We're all still here. In fact, it's incredibly robust and we can talk more about that, but just how close we we came. And I think when I talked to CEOs who were saying, you know, in, you know, in airlines and hotels, like, does this business even make sense anymore? You'll remember just the idea of physically being that close to people just felt alien all of a sudden. And there was, a, I think there was a real question about how much of the sort of normal day-to-day stuff would return. I mean, obviously it almost entirely has, but I think, you know, really just this idea of like, does the economy that we've built and that for 10 years, really 12 years had been 
on this glide path, just constantly going bet higher and higher. Uh, does that even make sense anymore? And I think trying to capture that in the moment and bring people back to just how fraught and fragile it all was. Yeah. And why, again, CEOs are no, not unused to being on the brink, you know, that Friday, Hey, we have to make payroll. That's the experience. But I think this, this time it felt different. There was the uncertainty and the unknowingness and, you know, talking to some people in in your case, you had mentioned, Hey, this'll be done in three months. This'll be done in six months. I was one of my more, you know, conservative view friends. Hey, this is going to take 12 months as if I'm an expert in the, in the situation. And now recording in 2023, you know, some people are still going through the transformative effects. And I look forward to your next book because, you know, if it all crash landed in 2019, you know, what is that new economy, new way of being that people have adapted into the, not the hybrid world and not even the post COVID world, just, you know, post 2023. But um, I guess as as a question is saying, what were some of the most interesting i suppose stories or what what did you take away from your interviews what did you take away from from your learnings you know as someone who has covered this sector for so long was there anything that was surprising uh, through all of that and i'll let you just kind of share whatever you think is most interesting at a high level and this is not incredibly revelatory or saying i I'm amazed at how well it turned out, just at a very high level. The economy um, or the book? The economy. The book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully both. <laughs> Though when you've read read those 90,000 words as many times as I have now, it's it's uh they they sort of start to lose all meaning. No, just inc- how how frankly lucky we are that you know you think and and a lot of that I think is credit is due to to governments all around the world if you think about it and we, you can have your own political view on moral hazard and bailouts and you know government support for the private sector but you know looking just in the US the federal reserve and the treasury department did in about 6 weeks what it took them 9 months to do in 2008 and we got a 18 month recession out of that and what they frankly never did in 1929 and we got a six year depression. So, you know, I, I think the lesson coming out of it is, is that the government is there as, as the backstop for the economy and there's all kinds of screwed up incentives and, and sort of dependencies that you create when you do that, but that there is no alternative. The other is, is just how I'm going to sound like such a cheerleader for, for modern capitalism. But um, just how resilient these big economies are. You know, the, the U.S. is a $22 trillion economy. It lost 30%, you know, in the second quarter of 2020 and bounced right back. And we've basically more or less gotten all the job, more or less all the jobs back, not perfectly. Labor market is on fire. In fact, the government is trying to figure out how to cool the economy right now. And if you think back to early 2020, I mean, it was, it was dead. The economy shut down overnight. And so, you know, that's a big takeaway. And then, you know, on the CEO front, on the leadership front, I think there, you know, every kind of generation produces its own sort of archetype of a corporate CEO and kind of figures out what it, what is valuable in leadership. You know, coming out of the 1920s and 30s, you had the first sort of MBAs, these people skilled in the science of corporate management. And then they kind of got fat and happy and lazy. And you had the conglomerates of the 1960s and 70s. And then you had the corporate raiders and the hedge funds of the 80s and 90s kind of whip them into shape. And then in the late 90s and 2000s, you had this real march towards globalization, multinationals, these CEOs that seemed to kind of escape the job of a CEO at all. Think about Jeff Bezos and Bob Iger and Jamie Dimon. They're real celebrities. I think that's going to pull back. I think 
the value over replacement for a CEO is generally low when things are very good. So for 10 years, we'll call it 2010 to 2020, respectfully, it wasn't that hard job. <laughs> the, the, the macroeconomic environment was incredibly benign. And you just had to like mostly make decent decisions along the way. You don't have to make that many of them. I think that has totally changed. And I think you saw some CEOs just really rise to the occasion. And there's a couple in the book that I think deserve a lot of credit. Criticize the airlines all you want, but they're still here. And that's a huge testament to how they manage their balance sheets and their workforces and frankly managed to get Washington to bail them out. Hey, Anthony here. One of the things I don't talk too much about on the podcast is what we do at SME Strategy. So I wanted to let you know that if you and your team are thinking about getting together you know, this winter or even in the new year for strategic planning, that we'd be happy to have a conversation to see how we might be able to help your team walk through the strategic planning process and make sure that your people, your strategy, your culture are on the same page. One of the most exciting parts about the work that we do is being able to lead people through a proven process to help them get to where they want to go. If you're interested about that process, our video about it on YouTube just hit over a million views. So be sure to check that out. Let us know what you think. Uh, but most importantly, I wanted to let you know that if you are looking for somebody to partner with your team to support everybody in getting aligned, moving forward towards a clear set of goals and objectives, and really making sure that you have the foundations for that next stage of growth, that we can partner with you to do that. Whether that's through an offsite strategic planning session or, you know, follow up support services to keep you accountable, to help your team grow and develop, or really to lead a full transformation. So if you're interested, check out smestrategy.net. You can check out our about page, our services page. It'll tell you more about how we do things. And I'd be happy to have a conversation with you to see if we're a good fit to help. Thanks so much. I appreciate you listening to the podcast. And now let's get back into the episode. Hmm. I think what's so interesting is you talk about, you know, the role of the CEO from 2020 onward and that if the markets are growing and you've got a good team, you can make it work, especially the ones that are you know, like built on really good foundations and then the ones that had to adapt. And what I find so interesting running in parallel with the government is these businesses are, call it accountable, but responsible for thousands, tens of thousands of jobs. And so their ability to get into shape, to be able to get organized for the, not just for the sake of the company and for stockholder gains and all that other stuff, but for the livelihood of thousands of people. And so I, I just find that angle of it interesting. Um, as you talk to the people that had to, whether that was reinvent their businesses or, you know, uh, uh, adjust how they were positioning themselves, were there one or two stories that really stood out to you that you're like, oh yeah, this was neat. That would be uh, of use to our listeners that they could, you know, look at their next CEO growth and say, hey, I could use a little bit of that ingredient in my life? I think the airlines are a really interesting example because there is this interplay with the government too. To your point, and I'm one of those people who whenever I hear a politician say my administration created 5 million new jobs, I roll my eyes because government doesn't create jobs, businesses do. But governments, but the, the role of government there is to support the private sector in times of stress. And that's what we saw here. So you know, there was a lot of hand-wringing in Washington, and there has been since then about the $50 billion or so that was given to bail out the U.S. airline industry. But the sort of lab test, the A-B scenario of that, where that didn't happen, is that you had, you know, indirectly airlines account for, I think, something like one in 15 American jobs somewhere in the supply chain. And you've had 
tens and hundreds of thousands, millions of people out of work who would have landed on unemployment rolls, you know, one way or another, we all pay for this. And so, you know, the thinking there was we have to keep these people employed. And there was, I should say, a, a similar program for small businesses, which is getting people back to work is incredibly hard, as we're all finding out now. So when in doubt, try to keep people employed. And, and the airline bailout was a really interesting example of that. It's $25 billion where the government covered the payroll for these giant companies that everybody hates. And it's not totally popular, but I think it was the right thing to do. Yeah, I think it's tough because there is that sentiment, again, as a citizen or an individual where you say, hey, like these are my taxes going to these things. But I think like looking at, at the supply chain, how everybody is impacted by those organizations and the government's job is to keep everything running to the best of their ability. And by the how- way, you, you pay for it either way. Right? Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Every dollar spent gets paid for in some way. It's either taxing future you by borrowing or um or or you know just yeah, just straight up raising taxes. So um, but I think the the lesson, especially coming out of the 2008 financial crisis, was once the economy grinds to a slow halt, it's incredibly hard. Think about it like a like a rubber band. You know, it might seem like the pandemic's been going on forever, but it was a relatively, I mean, incredibly quick collapse and an incredibly quick snapback and that that is generally easier and sort of more manageable. Yeah, absolutely. So outside of the book, you know, what are some of the things that now you're reporting on if people want to follow along with the work that you do? What is exciting about that you're seeing, you know, post post this COVID pandemic economic rebound? What are you writing about seeing now in the economy that interests you as a journalist? Yeah. So we launched Semaphore in October. So we're about four months old with a, a goal to to really rethink the news and to be, you know, we bring global perspective to everything we do, which is hugely important now because I think, you know, the global economy is, is you know, leads the news every night. And, you know, I think there's a couple of things that I think are interesting, right? This, um, you know, really going back to the mid nineties, late nineties, there was this sense, I think it was broad consensus that, Globalization was here to stay, that there was a, a linkage between sort of financial liberalization and, and political liberalization, right? That it's this old McDonald's theory that no two countries that have a McDonald's have ever fought a war. That was never really true. And it's certainly obviously not true now. But this this idea that there was a sort of steady march towards big multinational economy, kind of borderless economies, that is totally dead. Pandemic, I think, has has really made people rethink you know, the the actual wisdom of doing that, if you're a CEO, if you're running a business, you've got a supply chain that, that you know, goes through seven different countries and all of a sudden your stuff is stuck off the port in Los Angeles and you can't get it. So I think there's, you know, supply chains are being rethought. A lot of onshoring is happening there. And then sort of at a, at a political level, you're seeing this really hawkish nationalism you know, one of the only bipartisan things, you know, in, in Washington is uh, is this sort of America first agenda. And we're seeing it all over the world. And I think that's going to dramatically reshape kind of how economies are structured and how people run their business day to day, whether it's a, a mid-sized business that's importing parts from China and assembling them and selling them here. I mean, I just, I, that that to me is a totally dead idea. So that's a that's a topic that I think is a I'm writing about every day. And then look, I think there's a lot of hand right now about inflation. This is very basic supply and demand. And I'm not going to say that I called, you know, inflation coming, but any basic 
you know, economist student could tell you that when you have the, the supply of something constricted, right? So you had factories were shut down for months, nothing could get where it was supposed to go. And then you have this explosion of demand, which is that people were in their houses for two years. Now they want to do everything. You're going to end up with higher prices. I think the central banks are figuring it out. I think that, you know, economic adjustments are not perfect, but they usually settle out. And I think we're starting to get there. And so I think that that story is actually starting to, to be over a little bit. And I'm I'm curious what comes next. Yeah, absolutely. What's interesting is, you know, as policymakers have to look at their indicators, which are always lagging, that they are always a couple steps behind because they need data to inform decision. And then, you know, even as the as they look at rising interest rates, whenever this might get published to say, hey, they might still be behind. So to your point, you know, the economy might be doing much better and the government policy lags behind it a little bit. So I think it'll be beholden on all government agencies as well as the private enterprise to just be aware of, of all of those trends as they as they make their decisions and then do what's best to avoid another crash landing, to throw a, the name of the book in there. Uh, Liz, anything else you want to share before we finish up today? No, this has been a this has been a fun chat. I think, yeah. I mean, I you know, I was a reporter for ten years, and and look, I I loved my job, and I found a lot of fun stories. But like, it was pretty boring out there. And um, and the last three years, obviously, not worth a pandemic. But I think, you know, just the smart people don't really know what's going on right now, and that always makes for slightly terrifying, but but pretty exciting opportunities for for reporters. I mean, that's what makes great TV when you don't know what's coming up next, but <laughs> less reassuring when it's like, you know, the entire global economy, but, but no, we'll, we'll see where it all goes. Absolutely. Well, I appreciate you being here. I appreciate you sharing. I appreciate you writing the book, which I'm sure can be uh, found everywhere and we'll drop the link in for it. And, and yes, on wherever pers- books are sold. Absolutely. On the internet or otherwise. And then on a personal level, just thanks for being a journalist because it's a tough job and it's a tough world right now for you. So I just appreciate what you do and appreciate what you do for all of us. And so thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks it for sharing. It is the best job out there, truly. I just get to call people every day and ask them what they're up to. Well, I, what, one of my clients makes and eats ice cream. So I think it's a toss up between being a journalist <laughs> and eating ice cream, but that's another story. Liz Hoffman, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's been a sincere pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Folks, my guest today, Liz Hoffman, the author of Crash Landing, the inside story of how the world's biggest companies survived an economy on the brink, which, as we know, is just still teetering, but so much to learn from great leaders, great CEOs there. She is the business and finance editor at Semaphore and, of course, a previous senior reporter at The Wall Street Journal. So even if there's smart people making decisions, you never know what's going on. And as a leader, it's critical to study the past, learn from it, but also recognize that the future is not necessarily guaranteed. So learn from others, but also chart your own course. And the best way to do that is to subscribe to our podcast. Yeah, just do it anyway. (laughs) This has been the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. Thank you again, Liz, for being our guest today. I appreciate everybody watching. Appreciate you being here. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We post twice a week, so you can count on us for your weekly source of content to help you grow and expand as a leader. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a review. We read every single one, and it helps us make a better show for you, the listener. 
Also, it helps more people find the show, which means we can help as many people as possible. We appreciate you listening and following along, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And as Anthony says, until next time.